Thank you very much, Dr. Keithley. Uh, yes, this may sound like an obscure title, but it's actually a very important topic because uh, what some claim is that Jesus was not, in fact, buried in a known tomb, perhaps not buried at all. And if that's true, then the gospel account of the women who discover the empty tomb Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, is more than likely a fiction. So this is what's going on. And, of course, what I'm saying in response to that is people who claim that, including some who, in fact, argue against it, don't know Jewish burial traditions very well. And that's a lot of the problem. And so even people supporting the truthfulness of the gospel account, as well as people who are casting doubt on it, neither side usually knows what's going on. And so that's what I'm trying to deal with. Now, it was mentioned the <clears throat> the topic uh, this uh, at noon today. I want to remind you that Fragments of Truth, which is on this topic, uh, our earliest Greek New Testament manuscripts, how long they were in circulation, how they were copied and, and transmitted and all that. There's a documentary that's an hour and a half long called Fragments of Truth, produced by Faith Life, Logos Bible Software. It will be in the theaters, some of them right in this area, 741 theaters in the United States on Tuesday, April 24th. Most of the show times will be 7 p.m., I think, in most cases. Anyway, I wanted to let you know that this is an opportunity for you to bring students, family, friends, people at your church, bring them out in large numbers, let them get educated, and uh, see the documentary, because we interview at least 20 people, maybe it's a little more than 20 people, experts in ancient manuscripts, museum curators, papyrologists, textual critics, some of the best-known people, and those of you who are uh, graduate students, you'll recognize them. We go to uh, Dublin, Ireland, Manchester, England, Cambridge, Oxford, <coughs> Geneva, Rome, where the oldest manuscripts are. And you'll see some of the best pictures ever taken of them and experts talking about them. So, uh, and this is Bart Ehrman country, so to speak. He's the guy that in some ways got it all started with his misquoting Jesus, uh, a very bad book in a lot of ways, very misleading book. So why not hear from the uh, scholars and get the facts? So this is an opportunity from a point of view of defending uh, faith and truth, uh, an opportunity for you. Why is the archaeology of burial important? Well, it explains some of Jesus' teaching. Jesus says some things that uh, if you don't know anything about Jewish burial traditions, you're not going to understand fully what Jesus has said. It explains some of the events of the first Easter, why the women visited the tomb when they did and what they were intending to do. And it helps us avoid the errors we, uh, we see in some popular books and documentaries. So this is a topic that might seem obscure initially, but it's actually rather basic and fundamental to uh, the origins of Christianity and for our faith. So we'll begin with Jewish burial practices. What you're looking at there is a bird's eye view looking down into a bone box, an ossuary, in which we have probably a couple of an adult skeleton and probably one or two uh, very young uh, children or infants. And that's a bone box, an ossuary. It's called ossolegium. And uh, it's the practice of gathering bones a year or so after death and gathering them up and placing them in a burial niche or in an ossuary, as you see there. The lid, obviously, has been removed, so you can look into the box. So we'll begin with the practices themselves so you know what they are. 
All right. Burial took place the day of death. And so I cite a passage. This is from Luke 7.12. It's the story of the widow from Nain. Her only son has died. As he, Jesus, drew near to the gate of the city, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. So he approached the gate of the city. Now, probably not as elaborate as the gate at the city of Jerash in today's Jordan. But uh, he's approaching the entrance of uh, to the city and being carried out of the city for burial outside of the city uh, is this uh, is a um, funeral buyer being transported by people and a woman is walking alongside grieving. And of course, it's a very sad situation. She's in a bad way. She is a widow already, which is bad enough. Her only son now has died. She is in economically in a precarious position. And then also quoting from Matthew 9, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and the house would be somewhat like the ruins of the house on the right at Chorazin, when he came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a tumult. In other words, the funeral is already underway. Funeral begins the day of death. Unless it's at night, then they overnight the body in the house, and then it begins the next morning. So there's no long period of time. Somebody's not at a funeral home for a week or something like that. That's not how it happens. All right. How long is the primary funeral? It's seven days. Here's the material behind it that supports that. Now, Archelaus continued to mourn for seven days out of respect for his father, Herod the Great. The custom of the country, Josephus tells us, the Jewish historian, prescribes this number of days. Seven days. Seven days of mourning, fasting, weeping at at the graveside, and so on. Then after feasting the crowds and making an end of mourning, he went up to the temple. That's Josephus in his Antiquities, a 20-volume work that is volume 17. Also, you might look at Genesis 50, verse 10, where Joseph made a mourning for his father seven days, or in 1 Samuel 31, 13, where they took their bones, that is, they, the brave men who collected the bones of Saul and his sons, having been slain in battle, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So it's scriptural traditions like that that gave rise to the tradition that primary funeral lasts one week. Okay? Now, oscillagium, that refers to, it's a Latin word, collecting of bones. It's the reburial of bones one year later. Now, I appeal now to the Mishnah, uh, the codified oral tradition beginning of the 3rd century A.D., Tractate Sanhedrin, chapter 6, verse 6, when the flesh had wasted away, they gathered together the bones and buried them in their own place. So that's the practice, and it doesn't even take one year for the flesh to disappear because uh, the burial was often in a limestone cave, especially in Israel, and so the flesh wasted away very quickly. Or a father in Tractate Semachot 12.9 tells, tells the son, My son, bury me at first in a foss that's in a burial ledge inside a tomb. In the course of time, which would be normally a year, collect my bones and put them in an ossuary. And, of course, the Babylonian Talmud Tractate Kilushim, in fact, specifies it is 12 months. Here we have on the Mount of Olives a couple of pictures. You just poke your head through a viewing port. You can see part of a tomb carved in the side of the Mount of Olives. It's all limestone. And, of course, that's some modern stonework in the back, and those square pillars are modern that hold the roof up. And there you see a whole bunch of ossuaries plus some burial niches. That's Dominus Flevit, the Lord wept, based on a passage of Scripture in Luke's Gospel where Jesus approaches uh, Jerusalem, and he's up on the Mount of Olives, looks down on the city, and he weeps. 
It was believed that uh, when, when you died, your spirit hovered around your body for three days. After uh, three days, the spirit, your spirit departs. And uh, so here is a commentary, a rabbinic commentary in Leviticus that states that for three days after death, the soul hovers over the body, intending to re-enter it. But as soon as it sees its appearance change, usually on the fourth day, just through the warmth of the climate, natural decomp, there's no embalming here, by the way, that's Egypt, not Israel. The face bloats a bit, changes a little bit. The spirit says, who's that? And then leaves. And so that's what this tradition is. I'll reference it again. Now let's relate some of this uh, Osolagium burial tradition to Jesus' teaching. Well, first of all, look at this interesting. You'd never think, well, wait a minute, what's this got to do with anything? Such a very large crowd gathered together, Jesus that that he, Jesus, got into a boat. That's Mark 4, 1, and we have a picture of the ancient fishing boat there on the left, and there's uh, a shoreline. Uh, at Capernaum, where Jesus' headquarters were. So, okay, we get an idea what the boat looked like, what Sea of Galilee looked like. Why is it that there's such a crowd Jesus has to get into a boat? Is it because he's a brilliant teacher, or is it because of something else? Well, skeletal remains, plus other data, skeletal remains suggest that as many as one quarter of the population on any given day was in need of medical help, often only... One-third of the skeletons we find in multi-generational tombs are of adults. Think about that. Think about your own family today, an extended family. Well, can you imagine large families, bunch of kids, mom, dad have 10 kids, but only one-third of them make it to adulthood. Adulthood, of course, is defined as late teens. So don't define it as well into the 20s or something. No, 17, 18, you're an adult. And so there have been tombs found undisturbed. Uh, Grave robbers hadn't found the tomb. And archaeologists go in, anthropologists go in, and there may be 65, 70, 75 skeletons. Only one-third of them reached adulthood. And of those one-third, maybe two made it to 50, and one made it to 60-something. That gives you an idea about longevity, but also gives you an idea about health. Longevity is estimated at this time to be about 25 years. Now, it gets a little longer if you make it past, if you make it through early childhood, you make it to three, four years old, then your chances are you'll live to be 35. If you make it to 10 or 12, you'll, chances are you'll make it to 40. So it starts a sliding scale. But at birth, it's 20, 23 to 25 years. So Jesus' reputation as a successful healer guaranteed that people would try to touch him. And so you can reference passages in Mark chapters 5, 6, 8, 10, and so on. Jesus is mobbed by people. Sure, he was a compelling teacher. Teacher talking about the king of God is important and that sort of thing. But the fact that he could heal verified his teaching in the minds of many. But the fact that he could heal was all that mattered for a lot of desperate people. And so when we find these skeletons and you just count the bones and measure them and say, oh my goodness, only a third of this extended family in an upscale tomb, aristocratic type people, affluent people, had the best food, best shelter, best clothing, perhaps even access to medicine such as it was, and only a third of them make it into adulthood. What does that tell you? And it helps then clarify why Jesus is mobbed by people during his ministry. He has a reputation of being a very good healer. Jesus remarks on one occasion angrily, Matthew 23, you are like whitewashed tombs. You can see the tombs there in the Kidron Valley. You build the tombs of the prophets. And those tombs were, in fact, whitewashed. 
and the major inscriptions in them were oftentimes painted red or, or orange or something like that. Traces of paint actually remain to this day. And the tombs you're looking at range in the 2nd and in the 1st centuries B.C. The one on the left is called the Absalom tomb. You must realize that has nothing to do with King Absalom. But it's called that simply because of that uh, pillar on top of it. And that's what Absalom, feeling sorry for himself, he's about to die. And he says, I don't have a son. So he has this pillar erected that represents a son that he never had. The Zechariah tomb on the right did lead to some confusion, by the way, on the part of a Byzantine pilgrim. He assumed that must be Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. So anyway, if that's Zechariah's tomb, then the one there on the left, Absalom's tomb, must be John's tomb. And he actually wrote that on the side of it. It was only a few years ago identified, scratched it on the side of the tomb, Greek. And it was just a few years ago, somebody, when the lighting was just right, realized, hey, there's Greek written on the side of this. And it said, you know, here lies, uh, you know, John the Baptist and so on. Like, oh, my goodness. Of course, it's not. And it was fourth century. But anyway, somebody in the fourth century imagined that, probably on the basis of that tomb of Zechariah tradition. Jesus makes an interesting statement. Let the dead bury their own dead. Somebody uh, is a possible candidate to follow him. You follow me. Well, I will. But let me first go home and bury my father. And Jesus says, well, let the bed dead bury their dead and uh interpreters wonder boy that's kind of callous on jesus part he's you know he's very concerned about honoring mother and father why would he say this and we imagine the father is sick he's dying and so the son wants to be with him and and when he finally passes away and then see to his funeral but we should infer from this that father died last year and he's waiting for the the anniversary to gather the bones oscillagium and that's why jesus says let the dead bury their own dead. And yes, the own is in the text, sometimes left out when it's translated. So he is saying that the dead in the tomb can take care of the reburying. Now you might think that's really weird. They're not going to do anything. However, according to Jewish belief, the dead weren't entirely dead. Greatly diminished, of course, not moving around, not talking, but they're still there. And so there's a little residue of life. The bones are kind of, kind of almost alive. And so that's why it was always important to be buried with your relatives. You kind of had a little bit of fellowship, and there you all are, you know, gathered together in the same place. So that's a niche right over there, a foss or an arcosolium, and the body is laid out. One year later, bones gathered up from that ledge and placed into one of those boxes or a, uh, or a smaller niche inside the tomb. So it's likely Jesus' comment found there in Matthew 8 and the parallel in Luke 9 alludes to uh, oscillagium. So he says to the man, look, look, it's, it's far more urgent that we preach to the living, proclaim the king of God to the living, and not worry about the people who are already dead with their relatives. They can all take care of themselves. The family buried together stays together. There is a communal bone pit on the right, and, and of course you've got several generations, extended family, and the bones are simply gathered into one place, and they're not put in separate receptacles like ossuaries. Here's an interesting passage. You know, we all know it. It's John chapter 11. Lazarus has died, and Jesus arrives after he's been dead four days, and people are grieving and everything, and he says, okay, let's remove the stone. And they say, but, but, but he's been dead four days. Well, the spirit's gone, in other words. The spirit hovered for three days. He's gone, so he's really dead. He is dead, dead. 
and it's very unlikely that anybody can raise him up. And of course, Jesus gives his famous teaching, I am the resurrection and the life. So by raising Lazarus on day four illustrates much better than raising, say, the daughter of Jairus, who had just died only hours before. Raising Lazarus on day four uh, is much more impressive and more readily foreshadows, brings to mind the resurrection hope. So again, I repeat some of the Jewish tradition, the commentary in uh, Leviticus already mentioned about how the spirit hovers over the body. Uh, for three days, but when the face changes on the fourth day, it leaves. And this backs it up. That's Kohelet, commentary on Kohelet or Ecclesiastes. The full intensity of mourning lasts up to the third day because the appearance of the faith face is still recognizable. So it's a recognizable face for days one, two, and three. A fourth day, hmm, it's changed. Spirit disappears. When the spirit disappears, you really are dead because you can't get that spirit. It's gone. You can't get it back into the body. Yet Jesus did in John 11, and so that underscores his teaching that he really is the resurrection and life. Here's another one that relates to this. And knowing Jewish burial traditions properly, including the laws relating to executed criminals, we can understand this much better. Jesus remarks, <clears throat> leading up to uh, the Last Supper, Mark chapter 14, and this is uh, the passage, verses 3 through 9, a woman has anointed Jesus' head with costly ointment. Now the disciples are upset, and they, they reproach her, why did you do this? You want to anoint Jesus? You could use cheap olive oil or something like that. Why the costly ointment? Jesus rebukes them, leave her alone. She did what she could. In fact, she's done a beautiful thing for me. And it'll always be remembered. It's really interesting. He predicted that people will be talking about that forever. Here we are today, almost 2,000 years later. What are we doing? We're talking about it. And uh, <clears throat> But Jesus makes the remark, which I think was off-putting to everyone there. He says, she anointed my body beforehand for burial. I don't think that's what she was thinking. She isn't thinking, okay, Jesus, I'm going to perfume your body for your death. That's not what she's thinking. I think it's a messianic anointing, almost certainly. But when Jesus interprets it about anointing his body beforehand for burial... He's implying not only that he expects soon to die, but to die the death of a criminal. And as a criminal, he might not be properly prepared for burial. He'll just be buried. He might not be washed, anointed, and wrapped the way it normally is done for somebody in honorable burial. So in other words, he's, he's alluding to death and the kind of death, dishonorable death, death by execution. So that's what I suggest here. <clears throat> and so anointing might be omitted. Uh, as it turns out, it isn't. But that does explain why the women come Sunday morning with ointment <clears throat> perfume to uh, prepare Jesus' body. And you can read more about that subject in Josephus in a couple of places, perfume and spices in a couple of places in his antiquities. Now, in Mark chapter 15, Pontius Pilate has Jesus scourged and delivered him to be crucified. And we have, of course, a relevant passage in Josephus in Jewish War, book 6, where he talks about another Jesus, Ben Ananias, I believe a Christian, 30-some years later, demonstrating in the temple precincts and preaching a sermon based on Jeremiah 7, just as Jesus of Nazareth did. And so the magistrates uh, brought him, this Jesus, Ben Ananias, before the Roman governor, a different governor, not Pontius Pilate. And although flayed to the bone with scourges, he neither sued for mercy 
nor shed a tear, Josephus tells us. And this man was active from 73 to 70, that is, for seven years leading right up to the Roman siege and capture of the city of Jerusalem in the summer of 70. <clears throat> they led him out to crucify him, led him out very likely beside a road that leads into the city. And uh, as a Roman writer says, whenever we crucify the condemned, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this terror. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. Josephus also adds in Jewish war, General Titus, during the uh, capture of Jerusalem in the year 70, 69 and 70, his main reason for not stopping the crucifixions, which numbered in the thousands and ringed, ringed uh, the city of Jerusalem, was the hope that the spectacle might perhaps induce the Jews to surrender. By the way, he crucified people, left them on the crosses. This is wartime. Did not allow the bodies to come down. Of course not. It's at war. The rebels are behind the walls. And he crucified people on the western side of the city, not just on the north, south, and the east. Why is this significant? I'll give you a clue. Where are all the tombs? The tombs in and around Jerusalem are on the north, south, and on the east. Why would that be? Why did they avoid having tombs on the west? Why did Titus make sure plenty of people were crucified on the west side? Which way does the wind blow? The wind's coming in off the Mediterranean and from the west blowing east. They, he wants to make sure they get a good whiff of it. And of course left them to rot in the sun, picked apart by birds and animals. But that was exceptional. That wasn't the norm in peacetime. It wasn't like that at all. But this is a rebellion. The whole point of it, Josephus says, was to induce the Jews to surrender and, and end the war. Titus knew he had suffered casualties. Once those soldiers scrambled over the walls and a house-to-house -house fighting got underway and battled right up to the temple precincts, there would be a lot of Roman troop casualties. There's a reference here. Pilate granted the body to uh, Joseph and he laid him in a tomb. We actually have papyri where petitions are made to governors for bodies, by the way. Roman law, the digestive says, people can do that. This idea that if you're crucified, you, Rome, Roman law would not permit burial. That is just not true. Not everybody was buried. Of course, a lot were left unburied. But Rome would often give permission, and especially in Israel where leaving bodies buried unburied overnight was a terrible crime against the holiness of the land. So uh, the body is placed in a tomb. Everybody loves the tomb on the left. It's Gordon's tomb, the garden tomb as it's called. But that's likely, almost certainly, not the tomb of Jesus. It's more likely that it's the one over there on the right, inside the edicule, that is in the church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's not 100% certain, but I'd say it's probable. Now, did Pilate permit the burial of Jesus? Question mark. John Dominic Crossan authored a book in 1995, more recently followed by Bart Ehrman just a few years ago. They don't think so. <clears throat> they argued that thousands were crucified and the remains of only one victim properly buried have been found. That's not true, by the way. More than that, in fact, has been found. But that's their argument. So why should we see Jesus as an exception? So they argue. Well, the thousands who were crucified left unburial, unburied was during the war, not during peacetime. Peacetime during Pilate in the 20s and 30s, during the war in the 60s and the year 70. That was a different matter altogether. But this is a relevant question. It was brought up by Dominic Crossan, who killed Jesus. 
uh, in 22, 23 years ago, and Bart Ehrman just a few years ago. So what is the evidence? Let's consider it. Jewish, number one, Jewish piety required burial out of compassion for the deceased and his family. A lot of texts there for that, okay? Now, Bart Ehrman would say, well, yeah, of course, that's what the Jewish people wanted to do, but who says Rome would allow it? Well, let's continue. The second bullet is to avoid defiling the land. That's the real issue. Not out of pity for the uh, deceased. The real issue was protecting the sanctity of the land. Now, let me point out something to you. Deuteronomy uh, 21, 22 to 23, talks about how if somebody is executed, the body is to be hanged on a tree throughout the day, but as the sun goes down, the body is to be removed and, and be properly buried. Okay? Notice how it is paraphrased in this text called 11, 11Q Temple. So Qumran, Cave 11, the Temple Scroll, Column 64, beginning at line 7. You are to hang him upon a tree until dead. Did you notice the change in the sequence? Not stone him, then he's dead, now hang him on the tree. It's the other way around. Hang him on a tree until dead. But you must not let their bodies remain on the tree overnight. You shall certainly bury them that very day. You're not to defile the land that I'm about to give you. So most scholars think this is in reference to crucifixion. You have also crucifixion mentioned in the Pesher, the commentary on Nahum found in Qumran K4. And also in other places, other texts, where we seem to have the same thing. In fact, in the great eschatological battle envisioned in uh, this text, 4Q285, fragment 7, uh, even with the Romans, the Romans, the hated Romans, slaughtered their bodies lying around on the ground. Oh, that doesn't matter. Even though they're the wicked heathen, the Romans, and we despise them, their bodies are to be properly buried. Why? Because we love them? No. We feel sorry for them? Uh-uh. We don't want their corpses to defile the land. So that's a major reason. Now, Rome understood that. So my third bullet asks, did Rome respect Jewish sensitivities? And the answer is yes. We have evidence from Philo, Josephus, as well as Roman law, as we will see in a minute. Philo says, Philo appealed to Pilate in a letter of his to redress the infringement of Jewish traditions caused by the Roman shields. So the Romans then placed things uh, that were very offensive to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And now notice what he says. These are Jewish traditions, this infringement by the Romans, not to disturb the customs which throughout all the preceding ages had been safeguarded without disturbance by kings and by emperors. How can he say that if Rome routinely violated Jewish sensitivities? His argument wouldn't make any sense. His argument presupposes that the Roman authorities routinely respected Jewish sensitivities and leaving unburied dead in the land of Israel, it would it would have to be that's just that would be second only to offering up pork on the altar to a pagan deity, leaving the unburied dead all over the place, bodies thrown on the ground. That would be a, an outrage. Josephus remarks the same thing: Romans do not require their subjects to violate their national laws. He says in one place, the Roman procurators who succeeded Agrippa the first, who died in 44. He says, by abstaining from all interference with the customs of the country, kept the nation at peace. 
During the siege of Jerusalem, 69 to 70, the bodies of the crucified uh, were not taken down. And uh, uh, he actually... He actually refers to the condemned and crucified and buried before the going down of the sun. He's talking about this is the law. And so it was an outrage. I actually, I, I didn't explain. This is during the revolt. There were bodies of crucified uh, Jews murdered by rebels and their bodies were just cast out of the city. They weren't properly buried. And Josephus says this is an outrage because the condemned and the crucified always were buried before the going down of the sun. And so uh, Josephus understands this tradition. Philo understands it. Their comments don't make any sense if John Dominic Crossan is correct and Bart Ehrman's correct in saying, no, 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 it's exceptional. There's only one person that was ever buried who was crucified. That's that guy with the nail in his heel. That's just, well, then how do you understand what Philo and Josephus are talking about? Philo bitterly complains of Flaccus, the Roman governor of Egypt, whose conduct was offensive and exceptional. He says, I have known cases when on the eve of a holiday of this kind, people who have been crucified have been taken down and their bodies delivered to their kinsfolk because it was thought well to give them burial and allow them the ordinary rites. But Flaccus gave no orders to take down those who had died on the cross. He's talking about Egypt, not Israel. And so even in Egypt, he is saying that sometimes the Romans allow them to be buried. But this guy, Flaccus, even on a holiday, would not allow it. Well, if the Romans never allowed burial, what's he complaining about? That would be the normal standard. Now, let's get to Roman law. The Digesta. Roman law, according to the Digesta, the Justinian Digest, Roman law permitted the proper burial of the, of the crucified. Quote, The bodies of those who are condemned to death should not be refused their relatives, and the divine Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who ruled from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14, in the 10th book of his life. When did he finish the 10th book of his life? One year before he died. So this is early first century tradition. It's not some late, late, late thing that's irrelevant. This is leading up to the very time of Jesus. So he said that this rule had been observed. At present, the bodies of those who have been punished are only buried when this has been requested and permission granted. So you have to ask permission. And especially so if they've involved any kind of treason. Now here's an interesting footnote on tomb bones. 140 plus, it's either 141 or 142, iron nails, many with human calcium attached, have been recovered from Jewish tombs, including the tomb and ossuary of Caiaphas. Many, perhaps all of these nails, were used in crucifixion. Crucifixion nails were seen as bringing luck. I know that's strange. Bringing luck or offering protection in the transition from this life to the next. The numerous nails supported burial of the executed. You would not have all of these iron crucifixion nails tucked away in tombs and ossuaries as good luck charms if crucifixion victims were not placed in the tomb. Now you can say, well, wait a minute, it's a crucifixion victim. They just pull the nails out and throw the body in a ditch. No. These nails have human calcium encrusted in them, which means these, pe these nails are from people who are actually buried with the nails still stuck in them. And then as the nail rusts, the calcium clings to the rusty spike. Then eventually, as the bones are gathered and so on, the nails are harvested and sold for a pretty profit. 
because of this belief they brought good luck. Necromancers use them too. Okay? Rachel Chaklili, Jewish Burial Customs, 2005, catalogs all this, where the iron nails have been found, which tombs, and so on. The crucified remains of Antigonus, along with a nail still in one of his hands, uh, is another piece of evidence as well. Antigonus was crucified, then beheaded. I'll show you the pictures now. Now what you're looking at here, Yehohanan's right heel. He was crucified in the late 20s, in other words, by Governor Pilate. Okay? About the time Jesus' ministry gets underway. And you're looking at the bottom of his right heel. Okay, so that's the bottom of it. So if he were here, all of them, he'd be going in that direction. And you can see the iron spike with a little bit of, of wood, uh, like a shingle or a washer, passes through his heel and then into the post and fish hooks in this direction. That's what's happening. That's why they couldn't pull it out. And so they take an axe and simply whack away the wood and bury this poor man with that spike and wood on both sides still in his heel. Even when he's gathered up for oscillagium one year later and placed in an ossuary and his name is written on it, that's why we know he's, his name is Yehohanan or John, uh, that spike is still there. They put him in, in this tomb and then in, in the 1960s the tomb is found, the ossuary is found and there he is, lo and behold, with a spike in his heel and we know for sure that he is uh, he has been Crucified. And by the way, I've seen the photographs of what actually was found in the ossuary. That heel is reconstructed. And so <clears throat> the archaeologists and anthropologists I've spoken to who was invo were involved in that 50 years ago, they will tell you that if that spike wasn't stuck in his heel, they never would have known he was crucified. And that's a key factoid because the nails are in hands, wrists, feet, and these bones usually don't survive 2,000 years in a limestone ossuary. They're badly degraded. We can just barely reconstruct parts of fingers, toes, those kind of things. It's the long bones, leg bones, the hips, the uh, rib cage, the skull. Those are the kind of things that survive best, not, not these smaller bones in the feet and hands. And so as it's been pointed out, if that nail wasn't still there with... Uh, with with this heel, we wouldn't have known that Yehohanan was crucified. You look at his other heel, and, it, and it's just pieces of calcium, just a pile of calcium. So had that nail been successfully withdrawn, I doubt if he, we wouldn't be showing his picture. We wouldn't be talking about this. Now, I know that's a poor uh, picture. Let me explain what you're looking at. Uh, here's the head of the nail. It makes a very abrupt, sharp turn in this direction. And then this is a finger bone right here. And then some calcium buildup from probably the other bone that's now gone that builds up on it. That's a, I apologize for that. That's a poor picture as best I could do. This one's a little better. These are other bones relating to Antigonus. These are two spikes found in his ossuary. Again, you can see all the calcium clinging to them. That's the mandible, the jawbone trying to remember which side but anyway it's flipped down you're looking on the inside that's too bad I wasn't allowed to touch anything what I wanted to do was reach in and flip it over because on the other side you'd see a deep groove in his jaw from the first axe blow this is the guy who was crucified passes out then he's beheaded the first blow missed and hit him in the side of the face and put a big groove in his jaw then the second blow hit him in the neck and took his head off 
Now, you might think, well, two blows. You know, in Hollywood, in the movies, it's always one swat. Do you realize judicial beheadings routinely required two strokes? How many strokes took off the head of, of James, who tried to overthrow, uh, you know, James, Duke of Monmouth, 1685? He failed. He got beheaded. Remember, he's put in, the, in uh, the Tower of London. He's beheaded. How many strokes? Well, nobody knows. A minimum of five, a maximum of eight, or somewhere in the middle. First stroke, bang, the axe went right into his shoulder. He's yelling and hollering and everything. The executioner was drunk. If, if you were well-to-do and smart and you, you were on your way to the block, you would pay the executioner to be, number one, be sober, number two, to sharpen his axe so that the first stroke would do the job. Isn't that funny? So there's a guy, you know, dull axe, uh, he misses, and the guy yelling and hollering, and it took several strokes to take his head off. Well, this one took two, and the first one went right in his jaw. So the evidence as a whole uh, <clears throat> supports the accounts, uh, the account in the Gospels. Pilate allowed the body of Jesus to be taken down from the cross and be buried. Responsibility for the burial fell to the Jewish authorities. Romans didn't care one way or the other. The Romans, you know, executed Jesus. He's, he's dead. That's it. And if you want to bury him, you can. You don't have to. We don't care one way or the other. And so in keeping with Roman law, Joseph Arimathea made a request of the governor and permission was given. Okay, and that's how Roman law works. Therefore, it is highly improbable the body of Jesus was left hanging on the cross just outside the walls of Jerusalem on the eve of Passover during peacetime. So if buried under what circumstances or on and on what terms? Well, he dies the death of a criminal. So that means that some of the traditions are, in fact, limited. And so, again, the Mishnah explains... In the Tractate Sanhedrin 6.5, they used not to bury the executed criminal in the burial place of his fathers, but two burying places were kept in readiness by the court, the Sanhedrin, one for them that were beheaded or strangled. Strangled would apply to crucifixion, because that's how you die. And one for them that were stoned or burnt. And that's in the Mishnah. And then uh, the very next passage in Mishnah says, when the flesh had wasted away, they gathered the bones and buried them in their own place. So you must be buried uh, in one of two tombs reserved for the executed, dishonorable tombs, but they are tombs. You're not left hanging on the cross overnight. And when the flesh is wasted away one year later, the bones may be relocated to an honorable place. And that's more tradition relating to that. The body of Jesus could not be buried in his family tomb, which is considered honorable, at least not for one year. After one year or so, his family would be allowed to gather his bones and rebury them in the family tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. Okay. <clears throat> Joseph Arimathea, a respected member of the Sanhedrin, says Mark 15:43. Well, because Jesus was not placed in the family tomb, but in a temporary tomb reserved for criminals arranged by the Sanhedrin, it was necessary for the women to make careful note of where Jesus' body was placed. And by the way, we find evidence of that. When we go into uh, tombs, it's not unusual to have charcoal writing on walls. That's about as uh, temporary as you think. You know, chalk, charcoal. I've been inside tombs, and there it is. It says something to the effect of so-and-so is here. That's just identifying the body. As you know, 
your memory, you know, is a little fuzzy, and you, you know, and people die all the time. Uh, every village would have a public funeral every month. And so in the course of one year, you may have placed three different relatives in that tomb. And so one year goes by, and, uh, wait, is it, see, and that's why you, you write on the charcoal, Esther lies here. Oh, we're looking for Aunt Esther. Oh, yeah, this, this, this is Esther. And you gather up, and then, of course, you, yes, that's right, this is Yosef. We'll come back in four months for him, gather his bones up. So that's how it's done. We can, we can actually see the, um, the writing on the wall inside these tombs, sometimes scratched into the wall, sometimes written with charcoal, sometimes a colored paint of some kind written on the wall, saying almost always so-and-so lies here, so-and-so lies here. And somebody went in one time and with a flourish wrote, good luck in your resurrection. And the your was in the plural, so it applied to everybody. <clears throat> When the Sabbath was passed, they bought spices to anoint him. Well, see, we know, we know why they'd buy spices. It's deodorant, and they're going to anoint the body. I mean, you know, the Sabbath is passed. Uh, Sunday is uh, day three. And so they arrive, and, you know, you know the body is going to smell. And so they want to anoint the body because they're planning on visiting the tomb and mourning for several days. And you're allowed to mourn quietly. No loud lamentation, no hired orchestra, no flute players, nothing like that. The grieving is in your heart for those who have been condemned to death and have placed in a dishonorable tomb. So the women intend to mourn for Jesus privately. Spices and perfumes are therefore necessary. And of course the mission explains they used not to make open lamentation for mourning has place in the heart alone for the criminal. So they're naturally wondering, well, who will roll away the stone? Well, this does not reflect well on the disciples. They've run away. So they're on their way to the tomb. And, of course, we, um, we actually have skeletons, and we know how big people were. Most women were under 5 feet tall, 4'10", 4'11", as we would measure it now, weight 90 pounds, 95. Men weren't much bigger, 5'5", 5'6", 5'7", 130, 140. So the women, see, are on their way to the tomb thinking, Man, and, and that stone is heavy. This one is damaged, of course. It's wedged, can't be moved. At one, at one time, it was, of course, round. And that's a typical, there it is, this small opening, about a meter square. You've got to stoop down to get in. And here's this stone. This one's pretty thick. And it's very heavy. And yes, a long time ago, this rolled a lot easier. But for two or three women who weigh 90, 95 pounds each, this is a big job. And they're wondering, you know, who will help us? How will we, you know, and they're looking for some guy who's 5'7", 145, big strapping man, who can help them move it aside. Yeah, real bruiser, you know, at 5'7 and a half. So Jesus had died as a criminal. Therefore, public mourning was not permitted, but private mourning was allowed. The women knew that there would be reluctance to assist them in rolling back the stone. You don't really want to be seen on the wrong side uh, politically. I mean, the high priests have condemned this man. He's been crucified. You want to show up. There's fear that <clears throat> the authorities will be looking for Jesus' disciples. The disciples have run away and they're hiding. Do you really want to come out and say, I, I'm loyal to this man. I'll help you with the morning. No. So they're wondering what's going to happen. So they saw, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It is interesting about the rolling word that's used because 80 to 85% of the doors were in fact square, like the ones you're seeing in the picture there, especially the one on the right. 
is like a square cork plug that plugs the doorway. Simon Peter entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings. This is very strange because if a body is illegally moved or stolen for some reason, why in the world would it be unwrapped? So the wrappings are there, but where's the body? Discovery of the open and empty tomb would have dismayed the women, especially Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you ought to read Tobit, what is said about the Orphilo's uh, uh, <clears throat> allegorical account about uh, uh, Jacob mourning what he thought was the death of his beloved son Joseph. Oh, man, you know, if you had a relative who has somehow died and is lost and the body's been eaten by animals, it's just disappeared or something like that, that it's like dying twice. That is a real grievous thing. Anyway, this would mean that the body of Jesus had been relocated. That would be the assumption. And think about the technicality of it. You're supposed to be buried in a tomb reserved for criminals. Joseph Arimathea has gone to the edge and has put Jesus in a tomb not yet used. It's neutral. It's neither honorable nor dishonorable. It is simply a hole in the ground until a body goes into it. As Rachel Hachlili herself, I kept referring to the Abba cave, and she says, it's not a cave. It's a tomb. But I said it was a cave. When a body is put in the hole, it becomes a tomb. Okay, okay, okay. You know, you don't you don't argue with Rachel. Okay, okay. She wrote the book on it. And so it really annoyed her that everybody and this is the Antigonus skeleton. Antigonus, the last Hasmonean ruler, defeated by Herod, Herod the Great in uh, 37 BC. So it doesn't matter that that was a cave. Once his bones were placed in there, it's a tomb. It's the Abba tomb. So, okay, okay, it's a tomb. So uh, this, this is what I'm saying here. Joseph Arimathea has a newly hewn, cut-out tomb, well, a hole, a rock hole. But as soon as a body goes in it, it's a tomb. But which kind of tomb? Criminal body means it's now a tomb for dishonorable people. A non-criminal relative family who dies, now it's a tomb for honorable people. Jesus, in a, in a sense, christens this hole. He's placed in it, and now... And it's quite a sacrifice on the part of uh, Joseph Arimathea. Just imagine the cost and expense of hewing out this new-cut tomb in which nobody had been laid before. That is a very... That's a generous sacrifice, because the body of Jesus now means it is a tomb that is for criminals. Now, did he, in fact, observe that? I mean, Jesus needed it only for a weekend. There, are, you know, His body is not in there decomposing. His body is just plain gone. So it's possible Joseph Arimathea says, you know what, we're going to use this for our family. And is anybody going to object? You know, I don't know what he did. We just don't know. But it's possible, and I can imagine the women arriving, finding the tomb empty, thinking, okay, I knew it was too good to be true. His body should have been placed in one of the two tombs, reserved for criminals. And what's probably happened is the authorities came during the weekend, removed his body, took it somewhere else, and now we need to find it. But it's day three. It's Sunday. They better find it before Monday because they won't be able to identify it. And by the way, there were two other men crucified with Jesus. There could be three bodies that died on Friday and what are they going to do? Find them on Monday? Three bodies thrown together with who knows whatever else in one of these tombs. Which 
Which one's Jesus? Well, I know. I wrapped him a certain way. He's been unwrapped. Yeah. So that's, that's, I think, the horror of the whole thing. The fear is Jesus has been relocated. Sunday's the third day of death. If Jesus' body is not found that day, Monday's probably too late. So this is what's going through their mind. In other words, they don't see the empty tomb and think, Shazam, Jesus has been resurrected. That isn't what comes to mind. So it was believed on the fourth day that the soul departed, the face of the corpse was no longer recognizable. Resurrection was not expected. So what is Christian belief? Because of the appearances of Jesus, that tilts toward resurrection, because of the empty tomb, with the linen wrappings left behind. That's why Jesus' followers spoke of resurrection and not simply of ghostly spiritual appearances. That's a very important thing. Why did the early Christians speak of resurrection? If all it was was some kind of phantasmal vision, Peter, you know, oh, I saw Jesus. You know, I had a vision. I, there he was. And he, he was vindicated. And he told me everything is okay. He's at the right hand of the Father. Why would anyone speak of resurrection? There are other visions that have happened before. Jeremiah appears to one of the Maccabean rebels. Nobody starts saying, wow, Jeremiah was resurrected. The Jewish people had ghost stories, phantoms and visions. In fact, you even read one or two of them in the book of Acts. Peter's ghost, we, th- we think, is what is meant in the book of Acts. Rhoda sees it, <gasps> runs back, tells everybody, Peter, Peter, you know. So anyway, that's why they speak of resurrection. Not only the appearances, but the tomb is empty. The corpse is not there, but the linen wrappings are left behind. But what if Jesus' bones were found? And so I'm, I'm taking you right to something that was big news a few years ago. Have we found the bones of Jesus? Some say we have. By James Cameron. Press release in New York a few years ago. There's the uh, ossuary of Mary Magdalene on the left, the ossuary of Jesus on the right. There they are in reverse order, Mary Magdalene, beautiful uh, ossuary, gabled lid on the right, very plain, simple, flat-lidded ossuary on the left, Jesus. Yes, written by Simka Yakubovich, the naked archaeologist, program in Canada. James Cameron of Titanic fame, RoboCop. You know, he has all the credentials needed. (laughs) He was interviewed, and he says, well, you know, he said, I'm not a biblical scholar, I'm not an archaeologist, I'm not a historian, and he said, I'm not a theologist. (laughs) And I thought, "Uh, uh, what's a theologist? Well, I'm sure he isn't. I'm sure he isn't, whatever that is. Anyway... And, uh, and Simpika Yakubovich says the same thing. I'm not any of these things, but I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. That was 2007. So what are they talking about? This uh, accidentally unearthed in 1980, March. And so last week and a half of March, first few days of April, 1980, uh, two archaeologists and a graduate student named Shimon Gibson excavated it. Shimon uh, gave us a picture. Now, by the way, pay attention to this gable pointed gable in this circle that's going to become a big deal and you can see the shape of this entrance so what kind of a door went into that likely one of those square plug types it does not it is not grooved it doesn't look like it's designed for a round stone anyway this right here the entrance is right there now looking down on it and there's the sketch by Shimon Gibson 
And so you can see there's a skull. He actually points out the skulls, one, two, three. In the redacted sketch, those, that's all removed. It's really interesting. They didn't want to show bones kicking around. And then you got one, two, three ossuaries there, then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and a tenth. Ten ossuaries. <coughs> nine of the ten were either inscribed or decorated. The tenth one had no uh, inscription or marks of any kind. So it was just tossed aside, put in a uh, in the parking lot of a warehouse. The other nine were cataloged and placed into the Israel Antiquities Authority warehouse. Well, this is the one that created the sensation. So you see the X over here on the right side. Remember, Hebrew and Aramaic go this way, right to left. And if you look really hard, you can just barely see Yeshua, a real badly executed Yod, and a sideways shin. Here's Yeshua, and there's the iron, and then there's the bar, Beit Resh, and then Yehoshef. Uh, so, uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. Here's a closer look. It's a little easier. I saw a lot of you squinting, trying to see that. And there it is, the facsimile of it. Uh, and, of course, is this even right, Yeshua? And it is really weird. I've seen some a magnification microscope work, and it's actually overwritten over another name. Yudan, it looks like, is the original name. So that's very mysterious. But anyway, let's just leave it as Yeshua for now. Then, without permission... He re this is all underground now. He removes the simka, removes the lid, climbs down inside, and there he is caressing this gable, going, ooh. And he tries to argue that it's a Jewish symbol. It's the symbol of the Jesus movement. Now, this is very deceptive. Okay? So he says, this is the symbol of the ancient Jewish Christian movement. This uh, pointed gable over the circle of rosette. Well, it is not. And uh, he actually, in, the, uh, you know, in one of his press releases, I worked for th three years, and Cameron, yes, and I spent $2 million, and we figured out what this means. Well, I ran upstairs to my library, and in 30 minutes, I found out what it really is. And here's the pointed gable with a circle. You recognize that? Oh, whoa, wait, this is minted by Philip the Tetrarch in A.D. 8 or 9. What is he? Is he a crypto-Christian too in the year 8? And here we have it over. This is Hasmonean. Guess what? Ooh, pointed gable dot. What is this? Here it is. Looks kind of like a temple to me. Gable dot. In fact, it represents the temple. Now, this is a later thing. This is like 4th century. It's Jewish. But look at there. There's a Torah scroll. And what do we have? Pointed gable circle. This is a long-standing Jewish symbol that reflects the Herodian temple and even after the temple was destroyed the symbol still has meaning and continues for years and years and it shows up on ossuaries does anybody see an X on this one yes of course XX Ooh, is this is that the cross tilted over no 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 X marks the end that is this end of the ossuary matches this end the end of the lid matches this end of the ossuary it's a stonemason's mark these things are heavy. They are not symmetrical. Uh, you, you know, the lid only goes one way. It will not go the other way. It won't match. And, uh, and so these X marks are common. Sometimes they're part of the circle motif. Look at that. That's gabled. Here's a circle. Gabled, a rosette. Gabled, rosette. I mean, it's a common motif. 
And it is not a Christian symbol. It's not all about Jesus' movement. There are some other things that could be said. I'm going to skip over them. Uh, I don't think we need to uh, talk about some of these things. But the other name identifications uh, did not really require the conclusions that they reached. So here are some of the conclusions. The gable and rosette design over the tomb entrance at Talpiot suggests temple affiliation, perhaps even priestly rank. In other words, the people that were in that tomb were not Jesus and his wife and son and other family members, as Simka Yakubovich and James Cameron argued, but very likely the very people who wanted Jesus dead, people who were strongly supportive of the temple establishment, possibly even priests. All of the names of the Talpia tomb, in fact, are Hasmonean and co cohere with aristocratic priestly orientation. The quality of the tomb and the ornate ossuaries point in this direction, too. So uh, 50 people gathered together in January 2008 to discuss this tomb. 48 of the 50 were serious scholars and archaeologists, both Jewish and Christian. And uh, 48 of the 50 said this is not the tomb of Jesus. So there's no evidence that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married or buried together or had children, etc., etc. This is all the stuff of mythology. So this is an example of archaeology misused and uh, a tomb discovery being misrepresented to the public. The uh, real scholars weren't fooled by it in a minute. Uh, Simka Yakubovich was one of those who said, you know, that uh, so two out of 50 James Tabor uh, of University of North Carolina, uh, Charlotte, and uh, Simka Yakubovich were the two of the 50 participants who said it, it could be the tomb of Jesus. The other 48 archaeologists, historians, and biblical scholars said it's not. And then Simka went to the media immediately. He knows how to manipulate the media and said, I have been vindicated. Well, I, I don't understand that. 48 out of 50 rejected his claim. He and one other didn't. Okay, you'd think he has a vested interest. And by the way, James Tabor was in his documentary. So he too is not exactly an unbiased, even-handed scholar reviewing the evidence. So 48 out of 50 rejected it, yet Simca made headlines saying, I have been vindicated. It was just ridiculous. Anyway, there I am trying to keep a lid on it. That, that's the lid that goes down to the tomb. And, you know, below me is you know where Simca was going, oh. And of course the authorities showed up and said, what are you doing? You didn't have permission to do that. And so that lid is now, it used to be bolted, but now it's welded in place.